From the Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the lives behind the ideas. I'm Edwina Throsby. The reason I love to read is because it's better than life. And I always felt that, you know, even in periods of my life where I was quite happy, it's better than life. Growing up in New Jersey, lifelong bookworm Fran Leibowitz has always done things on her own terms. After getting expelled from high school, she answered the call and moved to New York City to pursue her dream of becoming a writer. She quickly became part of the legendary New York club scene of the 1970s, hanging out at Max's Kansas City and writing for Andy Warhol's interview magazine. Her best-selling memoirs, Metropolitan Life and Social Studies, are brilliant chronicles of these times. Since then, she's been watching as the world evolves and changes, and whether it's sexuality, AIDS, activism, feminism, technology or presidents, she will most definitely have an opinion. Fran Leibowitz, welcome to It's a Long Story. Thank you. Before you landed in New York, you grew up in a small town in New Jersey. Tell me, what was your childhood like? You know, I really enjoyed my childhood. I don't know anyone else who enjoyed their childhood as much as I did. Partially, I think that's because I'm so suited to being a child. You know, I mean, I am really suited to a lack of adult responsibility. And so, you know, there were childish responsibilities that I found somewhat onerous because I don't like any responsibility. But the main responsibility I hate is supporting myself. And since no one was expecting me to earn a living when I was six, I found it <laughs> delightful. But it's true that, I mean, I lived in a little town. It was a very pretty town, um, very nice town. And... It was an era, like I was born in 1950. Um, I didn't know any women who worked. You know, mothers, which is what we called women, and we called men fathers, uh, didn't work. Um, and so they didn't really want you in the house all the time. You know, now mothers, women, want to be with their children a lot because a lot of time they're not. We weren't allowed to stay in the house. I mean, I'm talking about on a weekend, you know, uh, unless uh, it was pouring with rain. So what was she doing when you were out in the neighborhood? I have no idea. She's probably thinking, thank God that kid is out of the house. So um, that's my guess. What were they like, your mother and father? Um, they were extremely conventional, is what I would say. Very, uh, my father, both his parents were immigrants. His father was uh, Czech, his mother was Hungarian. He was the youngest of five children. He was a child during the Depression. Uh, his father lost his business during the Depression. And when he was 18, uh, he enlisted in the army, uh, and he was in the war in Germany, the entire war. There's a huge army base in New Jersey called Fort Dix. That's where all boys from New Jersey went for basic training. They sent my father to the South for basic training for some reason. You know, I always said this was to prepare him for the anti-Semitism of the Nazis. <laughs> um, and the first day he was there, uh, one of the guys asked him, could I touch your head? And my father said, why? And he said, I want to feel your horns because they were told Jews had horns. Are you kidding? So my father uh, managed to ingratiate himself because soon after he arrived there was Christmas, and on any army post, even now, there has to be someone on watch 24 hours a day, even if you're in Tennessee, and obviously the Nazis aren't coming to attack it. Um, so it was Christmas Eve, and my father said he volunteered because he didn't care it was Christmas Eve, and after that they liked him. So I was always asking my father about the war. He never would talk about it, and he... Uh, only told a couple stories that weren't really war stories. And when people, when other men would talk about the war in some kind of jocular way, he would just say, I don't know what war you were in. But when my father was dying, he talked about nothing but the war. And I realized that I never know him. Mm. Because, you know, like 70 years later, 60 years later, whatever it was, um, he was so haunted by this. 
And he would talk about it nonstop. And I thought, I never know him. And he'd and, been repressing uh, those stories his whole life. Yes, he never talked about it. Th- those men of that generation, they were brought up never to talk about anything personal. or Like, I would never have thought of my father as being sentimental. But when he died and I cleaned out the house, he had kept everything I ever gave him. He never expressed this to me. I had no idea. And my mother had a much different background because she was from Connecticut, you know, and she was from a place with very few Jews, as the town I grew up in had relatively few Jews. Um, so my mother acquired these kind of wasp values um, from the town, which she conveyed to me. And so in a way, um, this hindered me and has hindered me in my life. From morning to night, I was a recipient of her instructions, you know, that had to do with a grammar, manners, all those kind of things. And I hear this stuff in my head and I tell other people what to do. I mean, not little children. And I will yell at the TV set if someone makes a grammatical error. So that's basically, you know, how I was raised in that way. And this is actually the perfect description of my childhood. I would say to my mother, can I please have an apple? And she would say, may I please have an apple? And I would say, may I please have an apple? And she would say, no. That was my childhood. (laughs) Before we leave your childhood and adolescence, your adolescence was quite turbulent on the whole. Horrible. But I mean, everybody, I mean, maybe not everybody's, you know. I mean, I used to say there's only two people that like high school, the captain of the football team and his girlfriend. The main reason I had high school was algebra because I really couldn't do it, you know. And I was a fantastic grammar school student, by the way. I don't want to brag, but I was an amazing student in grammar school because mostly it seemed to me what we had to do was like draw pilgrims. And I was fantastic at this. I used to practice it. I used to draw extra pilgrims. I used to think like, I'm going to really practice this in case there's a pilgrim emergency and someone needs a pilgrim to draw a And I could do the work very easily. But once we got, arithmetic was always hard, but algebra, I, I, I just, and I started failing in school, everything. You so know. algebra was like a trigger that yes. kind of dominated down and to everything else. And I just paying attention to school, and I started was angry all the time. And um, I was bored in school, and I started getting really bad grades and getting suspended all the time. And, um, yeah, once – I mean, it may not have been just the algebra, but once I got to that, um, you know, grade in school, um, I started failing in school. And then I was constantly punished. And my parents were furious at me, uh, really angry at me. Um, and so I was constantly at war with them until I finally got expelled. Mm-hmm. And you say you got expelled for nonspecific surliness. <laughs> well, because I was in public school and uh, the, I don't know, principal or the guidance counselor, you know, said to my parents, um, she's never going to get into college. My adolescence was a constant war. You know, I mean, this was not unusual for people to be fighting with their parents. They don't do it so much now. It's interesting to me. I mean, the girls fighting with their mothers when I was young, when you were a teenager, was routine and constant. And now, I mean, when my friends had children and they were that age, they didn't fight with them that much. And I, I always thought it's because, you know, my friends uh, and people my age and certainly people younger, they like their children more. They actually like them more. So I don't think they love them more. They like them more. So you had no sense that your parents liked you at all? No, they did not. They were quite explicit about that. Um, my mother used to say to me, you know, I always love you, but I don't always like you. Um, and I think that she, she never liked me. And I could tell you that they never forgave you from getting expelled from school, mm. ever. Did they encourage your ambitions to be a writer at all? You know, they didn't encourage you and they didn't discourage him. They didn't really care. You know, I, I, um, it, it was quite hard being a girl when I was young. 
if you're a girl. Mm-hmm. Um, it was fabulous for boys. Um, but the good thing was about being a girl was the, the, the bad part of being a girl is that no one took you seriously. The good part is because they didn't take you seriously, they didn't mind if you announced that you wanted to be a writer. Because if I had been a boy and said that, my father would have come down on me. He would have said, don't be ridiculous. Do you think you're going to earn a living being a writer? You know, I would say I wouldn't be a writer, fine. They didn't care. They didn't discourage me. They didn't encourage me. They didn't care. In fact, they never talked about my future other than going to Radcliffe. Uh, they never talked about it. Um, and what, sometimes, you know, when people ask me, did your parents want to be a writer? No. My parents wanted me to be a wife. Yeah. That's what they expected me to be. That's what they wanted me to be. Um, and that not just my parents, but, you know, all the parents I knew. They expected me to be a wife. That's what they wanted me to be. So my, the only thing I remember my mother ever saying about my future was she once said to me, you know, you should marry a college professor. Because you like to read so much that if you married a college professor, you would always live in a place where there are a lot of books. That was her advice for my future. She never would have said, you should be a college professor. That would never have occurred to her. Was there any point in your adolescence where you seriously considered growing up and becoming a wife? No. Well, you know, I say no. Not really. You know, for someone of my age, the point at which you start realizing that you're gay... In those days, it was like such a shocking thing to think. Is it truthfully you never heard about? It didn't exist. This is something I can never convey to people who are younger. It did not exist in the culture. You never saw it. You never heard about it. You never saw it. And if I wasn't such a bookworm, I wouldn't have known what it was. I know women my age who are from, you know, uh, more culturally impoverished backgrounds that I am from, um, who told me they thought they were the only person in the world like that. You could only think that if you never saw it at, at all. You never heard of it. It didn't exist. So, that you know, this discovery in yourself of this thing like where you're the only person on the planet Earth, um, I knew it existed. But I remember being probably like maybe 12 years old. And I remember exactly, you know, the thought that came into my head was, well, I guess if there's such a thing as lesbians, someone has to be them. But why does it have to be me? Because I knew that the life that I lived and the world that I lived in, I would not be able to live in, you know, that I would be. Now, that was my response. Other people's response was, I'm going to pretend and stay here. That never occurred to me. That really never occurred to me. So I didn't want to be thrown out of the world I lived in. I liked the world I lived in. But it, it was very clear to me that that would not be possible. Mm. You're expelled from school. You had a life to fill. And you had to decide where you were going to live. Well, when I first got thrown out of school, my parents sent me to live with my mother's sister. Did they have any inkling that you were gay? No. I'm certain not. I mean, people often say to me, you know, how are your parents, you know, about you being gay? I said, I don't know. They never mentioned it to me. They never mentioned it to me. Ever? Ever. Okay. So it's never, it never came up. They never mentioned it to me. It's like when my first book came out, you know, and, and after that, people saying. Did your father like your book? I said, I don't know. He never mentioned that he read it. I'm not certain he did. Um, they never mentioned it to me. But they sent me to live with my uncle. Uh, he was German, uh, and he was an engineer. And I guess the idea was that they would be stricter. Uh, but then I turned 18 after I lived there. I lived there for about six months, and I moved to New York. And I remember I walked into my parents' bedroom, and I said, I'm moving to New York. I'm going to be a writer.
When you first arrived in New York, did it meet your expectations, which I imagine were pretty lofty? Well, it did because, you know, we live near New York, so we came in a lot. And once I got to be about 10 uh, for my birthday, I got to choose what did you want to do for your birthday. And I would always say, I want to go to the Museum of Modern Art. I was completely obsessed with it. Um, and so it was still there when I got there. Um, yeah, it was... Um, but there's a difference visiting as a kid and living there as an adult. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this sounds not true, but it is true that my main worry was... I'm very, very, I'm very weak physically, and my main worry was I can't open a drive. A, a lifetime of handing things to my father to open. I hand things to strange men on planes. I hand things, can you open this for me? I so I thought, you have had your last pickle, Fran. There's no way you're going to be able to open this jar. Um, <laughs> but that's living alone. That's not living in the city. I was not, I was very, um, no, I wasn't, I was very um, excited to do it. So when you arrived, how did you identify, find, and then befriend your people? I mean, I moved to New York in like 1970. It was extremely dangerous than New York. Um, here's the thing about New York. It, you know, whenever you move there, if it was 1940, 1970, 2010, that's New York for you. And then as it starts to change, because it always does, you start complaining. New York used to be better. You know, there are people who are 30 go, wasn't New York better five years ago? Um, New York was very dangerous. It's not was my impression of it. It was extremely dangerous. It was, you know... So all my habits of living in New York are the habits of someone who lived there in the 70s. I see people on the subway, that you know, people who are young, they put their bag down next to them. I think, are you out of your mind? If I have a pencil on the subway, I have a death grip, but you're not getting this pencil from me. Um, and you might be able to use it as a weapon. <laughs> yes, you never know. Um, I mean, I used to walk on the street in New York. A lot of girls did. Uh, if I was walking by myself at night, you would take your keys and put them between your fingers so that you could do like, it. Um, I didn't know anyone. I just walked around all the time. There was a, the new school, which is college, mm -hmm. uh, had a lounge, a student's lounge, and I would just go and hang around there, and I met lots of people. Um, I would hang around there. I was the age of going to college, so it wasn't like... Um, and the Village Voice, which uh, was a newspaper, yeah. um, came out every Wednesday, and I would look for jobs. And the problem that I had was... I had no skills. Like, so I didn't have a high school diploma. I didn't have a college diploma. I didn't know how to type, which is the main skill a girl needed to get any kind of job. Um, and so I would look for jobs that, like, required, like, zero skills. So I would look for jobs, and I would think, oh, I could do that. It would say, like, job, you know, no skills required. Um, and what were they? They were, like, oh, cleaning? I was, and yes, I was a cleaning lady. And I, I have friends that are that I've had for, you know, since like I was, you know, 19 or 20. Oh, I was their cleaning lady. That's how I met them. Yeah. I got a lot of cleaning jobs because um, I would clean Venetian blinds, which all rented apartments, that rental apartments had. They're, they were metal, and no one would clean them, but I would clean them. And I once went to my parents' house, and I had these, like, red stripes on my hand. And my mother said, what is wrong with your hands? I said, I have a job cleaning Venetian blinds, and it cuts your hands. My mother said, that's not how you clean Venetian blinds. You take them down, put them in the bathtub. Well, my life became perfect. <laughs> I would like walk in, the, like, it's probably the most valuable thing my mother ever told me. <laughs> I would come in, I would take them, I'd put them in the bathtub, and I would spend the day like reading the books to the people whose house I was in. Um, so I did those kind of jobs. I did, I was a peddler. I sold belts in the street. Um, I did every kind of job. I, I drove a cab. Did uh, you have a favorite free riding job? You know what? I hate to work. I would be perfectly happy if I didn't have to work. I am like the perfect 
person to not work. What, like a 1950s housewife? No, like an heiress. <laughs> like, I buy lottery tickets, okay? And I know it's stupid, you know? And the goal of that lottery ticket is spend your life lying on the sofa reading, Fran. That's the goal. So back to those early days, you have this aspiration to be a writer. You're doing all of these shitty jobs in New York City to make a bit of money. What was the first big break for you? I would work like five or six days a week, and I would take Wednesdays off when The Voice came out. I saw an ad that said uh, that an underground magazine, that's what they called themselves then, needed someone to sell advertising. So I thought, a magazine, this is my big break. So I called the person, I applied for this job. Uh, it was a very tiny magazine, um, and it was published out of this woman's apartment. And I applied for this job, and I beat out like 10 absolutely qualified people because I thought if I get this job, I can probably get to write for this magazine. And I got this job. How did you beat them out, the others? I talked her into hiring me. I never sold a single ad because I never tried to. Because I knew no one read this magazine. I couldn't possibly bring myself to, you know, like say, put an ad in the magazine and no one will read it. And you won't be able to. Um, I got a couple like little restaurants to like put an ad in the magazine and, you know, let me eat here like once a week or something like that. Um, but I became very close friends with this woman um, and I started writing for this magazine. You got some runs on the board there and then at some point you started writing for Interview Magazine, Andy Warhol's Well, it's, magazine. it's after this magazine because mm. I wrote for this magazine, which was called Changes, um, and uh, there was a guy there uh, named Ed McCormick, he's still alive, and he wrote for Changes and he also wrote for Interview, he was a very good writer. And I was writing book reviews for Changes. And there was a, uh, another girl, uh, actually a woman, she was probably 25, much older than me, um, and she was writing movie reviews. We were movie mad when I was young. Everybody I knew was like obsessed with movies. We went to the movies 24 hours a day. And uh, she got an assignment writing uh, something for the New York Times, which was like an unheard of thing to happen to someone. So the woman on this changes said to me, I said, can I write the movie reviews because she's going to be writing this thing? She said, yes. So I wrote these movie reviews. They were funny. They weren't, you know. And instantly people started, like, noticing my writing because, of course, people were very interested in movies, not in books. Then when this woman came back from writing this article, uh, the owner of the magazine said, well, you can't do it anymore because she's going to do it. So I asked this friend of mine, Ed, do you think you can get me a an interview with Interview Magazine to see if I can write, because it was mostly about movies interview then. Mm -hmm. um, and so he did. And I went to the factory. Um, now, people, of course, who are young think I'm talking about the 60s factory, which is the tinfoil factory, that, that factory, the one after that. Um, I'm not that old. Um, and so this was after Andy had been shot. So I, I went to the factory. The, the door opened at when the elevator, when it opened, there was a steel door closed. You couldn't get in. And there was a piece of paper pasted to it. And it said, knock loudly and announce yourself. So I banged on the door and someone said, who's there? And I said, Valerie Solano. <laughs> and Andy opened the door. I was shocked. First of all, this will give you some idea of how smart Andy was. I say Valerie Solano and he opens the door. You know, I would not open the door, if, but I... Even though it was called Andy Warhol's interview, for some reason it never occurred to me he would be there. I never thought about it, you know. And he said, no, you know, well, who are you? And I said, oh, I have an appointment with the editor of interview. Um, and he said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a writer. And he said, really? 
I said, I want to write movie reviews. I, and I just like, demand, I mean, no one read interview. It wasn't like the New York Times. And I said, I want, I'd like to write movie reviews. Okay, we'll pay you $10 a review. I thought, wow, this is fantastic. My rent was $121 a month. And he said, uh, I said, I want to have my own column. He said, okay. I said, I want to have the back page be my column. He said, okay. I said, I just want to review bad movies. I want to call my column the best of the worst. He said, okay. And I started doing it. And I would do like 10 reviews. You know, so I went to screenings all the time. I, th I have the greatest life of anyone. I spent all day long going to screenings. I write these reviews. I get paid $100. You know, that my life instantly became fantastic. Did you like Andy Warhol? No. Why not? Um, he was a vampire. You know, I mean, you're not supposed to say this. I mean, he's such a, you know, myth now. I, he did not like me either. I have to, you know, um, had he liked me, maybe I would have liked him more. But I, I think probably not. I never would talk around him. He really disliked that. And it's in his diaries. He said, she won't talk around me. She thinks I'm going to steal. He stole everything, mm. you know. And so I just kept my distance from him. I never. Now, certainly there was a long period of my life where I saw him every single night of my life. But that was just because we went to the same places. You know, I didn't deliberately see him. He never liked me. I never liked him. Um, I never hung around him in that way. But you say you were very much sort of on the same scene, going to the same places. Yeah, I went to the same places, so I saw him all the time. I mean, there were lots of people that I saw, you know, every night of my life for 10 years who I didn't like, you know. <laughs> so who did you like in that sort of whole period? I mean, it was Max's Kansas City. It was those kind well, of Well, I love Max's. Right? I mean, and there's, you know, I mean, when people say, you know, New York used to be better or whatever, you know, they're never has been any place like Max's since Max's. That is absolutely true. And that is not true if there's many other places, you know, that they're, you know, they're replaced by something else. You know, it was really like a moment in time. And, but for me, what you have to understand is that I just thought this was New York. This is exactly what I thought it would be like. This is exactly what I thought New York would be like. So what was so special about Max's? I hardly ever went to gay bars. You know, I mean, in my whole life, I bet I didn't go 10 times. I hated them. They were all owned by the mafia, you know, because it was illegal to be gay. In the front of Max's, which was a bar, was basically very straight. It was mostly painters, you know, uh, which is what we used to call artists because they were mostly painters. Um, and I would just walk through the bar like it didn't exist. I didn't care about it at all. And the back room, you know, was uh, much gayer, you know, uh, because it was a place, it was the only, it was kind of the only place like that where you could go, where you could talk. When people talk about Max sometimes now, uh, and they talk about music, they're talking about the upstairs of Max's where bands played. And last time people say, so you saw Iggy Pop? I said, yeah, I saw Iggy Pop because he was upstairs, but I would never have gone to see these bands. I, would, I didn't care at all. I mean, there's no one my age who cared less about rock and roll than me, no one. And it's not that I didn't like it, I just didn't care about it. Um, and you could go there and you could, like, there were really interesting people to talk to and, you know, you could always pick someone up. And so, I mean, New York was, I, I can't think of a nice way to put it, it was a whorehouse. I mean, the level of promiscuity of people my age in New York in the 70s before AIDS never existed before. And I used to say at a certain point, I would say, if they knew what was going on down here, they would be down here with the National Guard. You know, and it was completely... Uh, 
separate from the rest of the world in that way. You know, um, once AIDS happened, of course, that stopped. But uh, it was um, it was like incredibly fun. And how important was that whole scene for your creativity, for your writing? Oh, it was it was essential. I mean, I can't imagine my life without it. You know, the same way to me, you know, it's like asking a doctor. So if you hadn't gone to medical school, could you still be a doctor? You know, if you ask me if I hadn't been involved with those people and in that scene and and New York wasn't like that that second, I would have been a different person. It was more formative for me probably than any other experiences of my life. Also because the people that I hung around with in the back room were extremely, extremely, extremely mean and judgmental. And so, and they were reading my stuff and they were like, comment on it. And I knew that's who I'd interview. If you knew, you know, that these really, really incredibly brilliant, mean people are reading your writing, you know, you step up, I think. You see that certainly with performers, you absolutely see that. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that you've written that I really like was your first ever piece of the New York Times in 1987 um, about the impact of AIDS on the artistic community in New York and I suppose in the world. It's hard to underestimate the impact of that particular Holocaust. If I want to sound like an extremely nice person, you know, the most important thing was the human tragedy, but the cultural tragedy was at least equally important um, because of the people, I, I just, um, there's a, there was a photographer named Peter Hujar. He was one of my best friends. Um, and he died a long time ago. And the Morgan Library has currently this big exhibit of his work. All of his 5,700 contact sheets are there. And they made a movie using all these still images. And so I saw these people that I hadn't seen in a million years because they've been dead for 25 years. And when this movie was over, it was like 15 minutes long, I said to the curator, who was too young to remember any of these people, I said, one of the stunning things to me about these pictures is the amount of talent that is in those pictures of people that you never heard of, you're never going to hear of them. The kind of work they did was, you know, so peripheral to the main culture. It's very hard for me to decide, even though I spent a lot of time thinking about this, did the culture become so much more accepting because of AIDS? Or if there had not been AIDS and these kind of artists... Um, would they have gotten into the mainstream culture? It's really a hard thing because AIDS is the reason why there's an acceptance of homosexuality. AIDS made it impossible to hide your homosexuality. It's just like, you know, you can't sneak a cigarette on an airplane because there's smoke. Everybody, you know, when people say, you know, so-and-so was in the closet, I always say that is just a stupid thing to say. Everybody was. I mean, but once AIDS happened... You couldn't, like, hide the fact that you were dying, especially a, a very uh, apparent disease. But, I mean, you could see AIDS in people. It wasn't like a thing, like, where people just drifted away and some fairy tale was hideous. Um, so I think, I think AIDS really caused it. You know, it also, I believe, caused the idea of gay marriage, which no one ever thought of. When people say to me, you know, thank you for fighting for gay marriage. I said, I never fought for gay marriage. I never even thought of it. It never came into my head. It uh, never occurred to me, you know. So <clears throat> I never heard anyone say it. I never, I never heard of it. I think that it was like a deal people made, like in their minds, don't give me AIDS and I'll stop having sex with 15,000 strangers every month, you know, because that's how it spread like that, you know. I know you voted on it here. We did not, you know. If it had been put to a vote, I would have voted for it because so many people wanted it, but I didn't care about it. I never, I couldn't think of anything worse. 
always astonished by it. But I absolutely believe that it had to do with AIDS. I mean, I guess what happened was that AIDS politicised a generation because it had to. You know, people had to sort of fight for visibility, but also for rights and medicine and... and well, some people did. I mean, but there was gay activism before AIDS. You know, it was a thing I found ludicrous, by the way. I mean, I actually thought, like, this is ridiculous. First of all, I never, ever thought it would work. Ever. Why not? To me, the... Uh, hatred of homosexuality um, was something uh, in the world like trees. That was it. I was never that kind of person who thought, like, I'm not going to spend my life fighting for some impossible thing. The AIDS activism, some of it I was very opposed to, I have to say. I mean, I fought with ACT UP. Um, One of the things they did was out people. Mm. And I was absolutely opposed to this. I thought it was horrible. One of the things they did in New York, and I think in other places where they did these things called die-ins, where they would lie in the middle of the street. And I remember getting an argument with a guy saying, in case people don't hate us enough, I would really suggest to you that you make traffic worse. Okay, because if there's one thing New Yorkers love is traffic worse. I said, so you're going to be, you know, on top of everything else, the cause of worse traffic? Are you out of your mind? I think one of the things that was lost with all the people that died in the 80s and early 90s, you know, in that at the at the apex of the of the um, AIDS crisis. And you said this once that that what died was uh, a legacy of people and artists and creativity that didn't really leave a permanent record. You know, these people's um, way of being creative was talking. There's no way to convey that sensibility. You know, it's very hard to. You can, but it takes, like, hours. Like, you know, um, people who are young have no context for it. None. You know, you have to recreate the entire culture. There were some things from, like, the broader gay culture that survived that people were aware of and that seemed never to change. This is an astonishing thing to me. I didn't know about this um, gay Mardi Gras here, um, but I was in Melbourne the last few days. I saw it on the news, and I'm watching the news, the Australian news, and I see Cher arrive at the airport. And I think, Cher? How could it still be Cher? (laughs) I think, like, how could this still be Cher? Like, well, is everyone going to this parade that age? No. No, it turns out even these 20-year-olds, they want to see Cher. So in the broader gay culture, you know, that kind of campy culture, still Cher. Nothing's changed. You know, still Cher, maybe still Barbara Streisand, maybe still, you know, Marilyn Monroe, maybe still. You know, that kind of is funny to me. In a way, it's as if, like, you know, like when my mother was young, she loved Clark Gable. It would be as if, like, now, like, an 18-year-old girl loves Clark Gable. I mean, really? Still Clark Gable? Is it or someone new? So you spent a lot of time on college campuses giving talks and things, but you didn't go to college yourself. But you know a lot about a lot of things, and as you point out, you're generally always right. How did you learn what you know? Reading. Just reading? I would say reading and just, I would say mostly re- I mean, well, I mean, I'm old now, so, you know, everyone old knows a lot of things. It's like, it's the upside of being old. I mean, the real upside of being old, not quite as old as I am now, but... When I was in my 50s, it was very enjoyable to be in your 50s. Like people, you know, who are not yet in their 50s think 50s are horrible. 50s are fantastic because that's exactly at that point where I remember saying to myself, now I know everything. 
Now I know everything, and you still look okay. So, like, that's that's it. You know, after that, you still maybe know everything, but you don't look okay. And uh, I would say that I know a lot from reading. You know, I know a lot from paying attention, and I just know a lot from living a long time. Um, but I think the reading is the most of it, truthfully, because I started doing it when I was a little kid. And the reason I love to read is because it's better than life. And I always felt that, you know, even in periods of my life where I was quite happy, it's better than life. There's a lot of discussion, particularly in the United States here as well, uh, on Liberal College campus about who's allowed to speak and who's not. Oh, ridiculous. I am so opposed to this. I, I find this shocking. And I find it shocking that this is a left position, you know. And this is why I hate us, you know, if you're offended. I mean, first of all, to me, being offended is a natural consequence of leaving your house. The only place I am not offended is in my apartment. Why? Because everything in my apartment I chose. I like everything in my apartment and I'm in my apartment. And that's it and it's perfect. But the second I walk out the door, other people. The problem is other people, of course. Um, so other people who I did not choose. Unfortunately, not everyone in my subway car did I choose to be in the subway car. I, I'm just astonished by it. Trigger warnings? It's, you know, you might have your feelings hurt. You know, you are going to have your feelings hurt a million times a day. You better get used to it. You know, I mean, the best way to deal with that is hurt their feelings. That's what I do. (laughs) So um, you've had an election in the United States, which elected President Trump. Since then, there's been a lot of talk out of the White House about, and it's not just since then, it's been before then, but about a notion of the elite, Who are they talking about? Who are the right talking about when they say smart people? They don't mean rich people. They mean smart people. They do not mean rich people. They love rich people. Everyone loves rich people now. To me, this is actually the worst thing that happened in the United States is there are no competing values to money. You know, Americans always loved a buck, no question about it. But there were really were competing values. In other words, there were lots of things that people respected and admired other than money. There's nothing now, nothing. And there is a notion that making a lot of money is a result of being smart, which is a laughable thing. I always say to people, if you think that you make a lot of money by being smart, you have never met a rich person and you've never met a smart person. How's the new administration made you think about your country? Well, I really hate to be blamed for him. Like, actually, people have said to me, you elected him. And I would say, not me. You know, I can't say I've always, you know, had like a tremendous amount of faith in my fellow Americans. First of all, he won by the Electoral College. The Electoral College is a horrible, horrible thing. What kind of democracy has an election and one person gets three million more votes than the other person and the other person wins? So that's what the Electoral College does. That's why it will never, it cannot be uh, banished without uh, an amendment to the Constitution, and there's never going to be an amendment to the Constitution. The other thing about American democracy is that uh, the entire electoral body doesn't vote. Uh, We have compulsory voting here in Australia. What do you think of that? You know, I just found out about this like two days ago. I think it's a fantastic idea. It will never happen in the United States. Why not? First of all, Americans believe that they're too free for anything compulsory, despite the fact that we have a lot of compulsory stuff that's horrible. Um, it, it will never happen. First of all, I have to tell you, I love voting. I enjoy voting so much. It's like 
it's like something like I look forward to voting. I love voting too. I love voting. After I like walk out of the voting, I felt like very happy. At big elections like presidential elections, my my when I was uh, I don't probably doesn't exist anymore. But when I was young, there was an organization called the League of Women Voters, and my mother was in it. And so my mother was always in elections a poll watcher. You know that someone who like signs mm-hmm. you in, and. Now most of the poll watchers in New York, they're pretty old people, you know. And so at big elections when they're, you know, presidential elections, I always bring candy for the poll watchers. Um, and I always bring chocolates. And I just enjoy I, – I loved voting in the last presidential election because I thought, now it's over. Hillary Clinton's going to be the president. I was so happy that day. That was like one of the happiest days of like the last five years of my life. Immediately of, followed yes, by. by one of the worst nights of my life. How related is the Me Too movement to the Trump administration, would you say? I don't think it is. I know a lot of people do. I, you know, it never occurred to me until someone asked me about this, and then they asked me about it, and I thought about it, and I don't think it is. Why not? I don't think it is. I, you know, I really, I don't, first of all, it's not affecting him, okay? I mean, um, I have to say that it really surprised me. It's, it's to me, an amazing thing that I could be so surprised because it never occurred to me that this would change. It never occurred to me. Just like being gay, you know, being a girl and a woman, having these things happen to you has always been true since the beginning of time. Always. True, true, true. For millions of years. And then in nine weeks, it disappears. I mean, I found that to be, I couldn't believe it. You know, when it first started with Harvey and I, they say that of the first big group of, you know, men, I personally know over 90% of them. You know, I knew millions of stories about all these guys, except I never heard these rape stories. Right. You know, I never heard any of the, ever heard violence, but when people said they didn't know about Harvey, that's just absurd. I felt, and I still do, this is happening to Harvey because Harvey's not Harvey anymore. His, he's in a decline. The business is in a decline. His business is in a decline. He's not as powerful. And I still believe that this never would have happened to Harvey 10 years ago, not in a million years. Okay? Not in a million years. So because it happened to Harvey, that did prompt the other things that happened right after it, much more, I think, than Donald Trump. As that was happening, it seemed like it was happening one a day, one a day, another one of these guys. I started like guessing. I would say to people like, TikTok, who's next? I knew, I, you know, it seems to have died down from the point of view there's not one a second. I said, well, you know, there's a lot of great jobs open. Like a roulette. This is a really good time to be looking for one of these great jobs. They are, these, some of these jobs are fantastic jobs. These are among the best jobs. You know, what can they do? Give all these jobs to women. If you give all these jobs to women, give all big jobs to women. And here's what you're going to get. You're going to get some bad bosses, but you're not going to get this. Mm. This is something absolutely peculiar to men. So do you think that anything's going to shift out of this, or do you think it's just yes, going to go back? I do. I do, because one thing that is, uh, it's not so much morality that I'm counting on, but what I'm counting on is how already certain things that people might say or do, they look um, out of fashion. That is much more dangerous to people than people looking bad, Okay. That will have much more effect. Here's what's not going to change. Men are going to still have testosterone. It's, this is a chemical problem. But I think like even since this happened to Harvey, which is like a few months ago, it's already gotten better. Mm. That is an astonishing thing. I would never, I would not have bet a penny on that. Fran, are you a feminist? I never really thought of myself that way because I never really think of myself as a person who 
agrees with that many people. You know, um, I live in the real world. But I mean, I've been able to live my life paying the least attention to men that you could possibly pay in that way. Like, you know, like someone say, did you ever mean like, oh, I don't know, I never remember men. You know, I mean, so that I, yes, I mean, I'm for girls. I always said that. Like, I always say when there's like Lena Dunham, when she appears in the golf room, and then there's like people, first they love her, and then of course they hate her, they're writing a million things about her. This is a TV show for people who are like, you know, 22 years old. You know, this has nothing to do with me. Are you asking me, would I watch this? Of course I wouldn't watch this. I'm, I'm not 22 years old. You know, if you're asking me, but do you think she's really that great? Do you think she's like really that great? I said, and I was saying, do you have any idea how many really mediocre male talents succeed spectacularly? Why are you so intent on making sure that Lena Dunham is a genius? Because she writes a television show. The standard they held girls to, the hatred of someone succeeding that hugely when she was so young, that's just envy. Mm. And that's male anger because if there's going to be someone, I'm sure she must be older than 22 now, uh, but the anger... Um, at someone that young succeeding is much, much more if it's a girl. But it almost never is. They're just as good as the 20-year-old boys who are doing that well. They, and they're probably better because it is harder. You know, so basically, I'm, I'm, I always say I'm on the side of girls. On the side of girls. And on that note, um, thank you very much, Fran Leibowitz. It's been really good talking to you. You're welcome. Thanks for coming. My pleasure. Thanks to Fran Leibowitz for making the long journey to Australia to join us at All About Women and for taking the time to chat with me in the studio. And if that wasn't enough of a Fran fix for you, check the show notes for links to videos of her appearances at the festival. And make sure you subscribe to It's a Long Story. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify and most good podcast apps. It's a Long Story is produced out of the Sydney Opera House Talks and Ideas program. This All About Women season is made by a crack all-female team of legends, produced and edited by Susie Anderson, recorded by Jade Valls, mastered by Elena Godwin. Our theme music is composed by Rainbow Chan, researched by Ellen O'Brien, and our executive producer is Jacqueline Booten. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby. Catch you next time.